Well, I was really excited to see you do the announcements. I was cheering back there, just so you know. Yep, I was so excited. <laughs> Bitter. Um, okay, well, well, some of the folks kind of maneuver a little bit. I just kind of um, just say I'm really glad to be back here at, at Huntington Beach. It is always fun to be able to be here. And, you know, I always think it's funny that, you know, Kevin has me teach when he's on vacation. And the last two times I've taught, he's been in the audience while he's on vacation. So I just, you know. Guy needs a break, and he's losing his hair, and I totally get it. So, um, <laughs> um, but really good to be with you guys. This is um, this has been a really fun series we've been in um, in this looking at the book of Ephesians, which we've called ID or like you know identification, and we're the sort of subtitle is becoming who you are. And I've had lots of conversations with people who have said, you know, gosh, I had no idea that God saw me this way. I had no idea that this is how, you know, I was created to be and this is how it's supposed to. It's been really, really cool. As I, I teach on Sunday nights to a, to a younger sort of audience, you know, mainly um, at the Irvine campus and having great conversations with people about what God's doing in and through this series. And it has been, been very, very cool. And um, so through the first three chapters of this letter that Paul writes to these churches in and around this city of Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, which is you know, modern-day Turkey, um, he's, he's writing in such a way that he says only one time does he use only one command, and that command in the first three chapters is remember. Everything else is about who people are, saints, holy people, God's family, dwelling place, um, marked out by the Holy Spirit belonging, all these things that are so, whenever people are in Christ, you get this picture of their identity as, as Paul paints it for the first few chapters. Then in chapter four, it begins to switch about how to live out of that identity. In fact, I'd encourage you, if you're new, to go, go back and listen to Kevin teach on the past couple of weeks and kind of get caught up a little bit about the identity that Paul's describing for people who are in Christ so that this stuff doesn't become overwhelming. But I'm really excited to be able to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, let's pray and we'll, we'll get into it. Jesus, thank you that you meet us here. Thank you that every one of us in this room has a story, and every one of us in some way or another will will connect to this message. I'm certain of it. God, I pray that you would um, move in and through this space in a way that we can only attribute it to you, and that, God, you would soften our own hearts. You would allow us to perhaps laugh a little bit when it's appropriate, and maybe, God, to um, to be sensitive to the point of maybe taking some real serious action in our own lives and um, taking this stuff seriously. And so, Jesus, we give you this, um, and we, we want to follow where you lead us in this space and in this moment. So, in Jesus' name, amen. When I was in high school, I was a, uh, I was a soccer player, and um, my, I remember going out, if, you know, maybe some of you remember going out for your first ever sport or audition or whatever it is that you do in high school, and kind of trying to assess the other talent who's there. And I show up, and um, I have, first of all, I have to explain, I was, um, I was, you know, I was 14 years old, and I was... Um, like probably 150 pounds and 5'10". And so I was this incredibly skinny, awkward person with mostly elbows and knees, and the rest of me was just sort of this stick figure. And I clearly have chosen the wrong sport. I should have played something else, but I, I chose soccer, which is a lot of small, fast guys at the time. And there's my buddy, um, who, well, he wasn't my buddy then at the, at the moment, but there's this guy standing over there, and his, name, his name's John Bamford, and everybody called him just Bam because that's just way cooler than... John, you know, so he was called Bam. And this is a guy who was one of those man children who, you know, who like could have shaved twice a day at 14 years old. You know, he's like got hair, you know, he's just this awesome, he's a man. And I, you know, I'm like skinny, you know, stick figure guy. And, and I'm watching him play soccer and the guy is just a sight to be, you're like, this is a mate. He can run faster and jump higher. He's stronger. And he's like, 
And, and what he would do, though, was really weird. The way he would stand, the way he would play, he, it was like, like if, it was, if he wasn't so awesome, we'd all be making fun of him. Because he would stand like he was a tap dancer. This is the way he would stand. And he'd run like that, too. So he's running like this, and he'd do all this stuff. And we were like, what is that guy's deal? And then we watch him play, and we were like, oh. And it didn't take long as, you know, the team started to come out, and we started to go through the tryouts and all this kind of stuff, where all of us gradually, as we started to run, our hands began to... <laughs> slowly come out a little bit and we would run like this and it didn't matter who made fun of us because bam ran like that we're running like this we're doing this whole thing like this and and, you know eventually we sort of you know I became good friends with them and stuff like this but the our intention clearly was to imitate him because if he can play like that and us skinny not quite yet men people could you know try to imitate that then just maybe we might be pretty soon our socks all look the same and we wore the same shoes as him and you know I'm sure he he loved it I don't you know but maybe he didn't even know about it but all of us wanted to play the way he played and when we talk about as Paul is talking to the church here in Ephesus he's talking he starts out the 5th chapter in, the, in, in one translation, it says, be imitators of God. I want to show you in the NIV. Here's what it says. It says, for verses 1 through 2, it says this. Can you show that on the screen? Is it on there? Great. Here we go. Um, it says this. Follow God's example. That's in the other translation. It says, be imitators. But follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Leave that up for a second on the screen. Paul says, he starts out by saying, be an imitator of God, follow God's example, do what he does. And then he says, do it as God's dearly loved children, which is a callback to the first three chapters of the whole letter, which are about identity. Do this as people who are dearly loved. Don't do this just out of obligation or fear. Do this out of, out of being God's dearly loved children. Whatever's going to come next, I want you to do this out of being dearly loved children, which is all part of the identity stuff. Again, if you haven't heard this before, you want to go back and check it out. And he says, live as an imitator. And then he uses, the, he says, walk in the way of love. It's the third time since the beginning of chapter four that Paul's used the word walk. It's used in different, sometimes it's just used as the word live. Other times it's used as the word walk. And he says, walk in the way of love, just like Christ. This is sort of, you know, this is, he's saying, you, when you imitate God, you're going to walk in the way of love. It's really important that you catch this. And he says, Jesus gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. Offerings are given without being mandated. These are things that you go, I'm just so excited about who God is. I'm giving an offering. This is what he's talking about here. And then he says, and a sacrifice to God, which means this took some kind of effort. And it meant that in some way, whatever, I'm, whatever Christ gave came at a great cost. Now, that is really important that you understand this stuff. Dearly loved children that there's a following and imitation of God, and that there is a fragrant, willing offering being given to God and a sacrifice, which means it costs us something before we get into the next part of, the, of this sort of passage here. Imitate God, walk like Jesus, children of God. Okay, so then, after all this, and then he says this, which so far we're, everybody's good in the room. Then he says this, verses uh, three through four. But among you, There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Keep going. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Okay, stop right there. Now, Paul starts out by saying, be an imitator of Christ, follow God, do all this kind of stuff. And then he says the very next thing, there should be not even a hint of sexual immorality. Now, when I read this, I go... Did, did you want to put something kind of in between those two things? Like, this seems like this is issue number 427 of 1,000, and we needed to get through a couple other things before we got there. And he says, verse 3, 
There shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality. Why does Paul, when he's talking about being an imitator of of God and walking like Jesus and having this sort of selfless, self-sacrificing kind of idea, why does the first thing you go into start talking about not even a hint of sexual immorality? Before we get into that, before we get into why sex, before we get into even talking about that stuff, we have to kind of at least deal with what does he mean by sexual immorality? Well, let me, it's the thing when I was a high school pastor, everybody wanted me to talk about and everybody hoped I wouldn't talk about at the same time. And now that I kind of deal with more kind of um, post-high school age people, it's still the same thing. I hope he talks about it, but I really don't want him to talk about it. The word sexual immorality in the Greek is this word right here, porneia. Now, that looks kind of familiar to a few words. Perhaps you might know in English. It's where we get the word fornication. It's where we get the word pornography, all that kind of stuff. Porneia, that's, that's the word. Now, what you're wondering is, but does it apply to that thing that I'm kind of thinking about? Is that really the, yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> if you're not sure, the answer, yep, just go with yes. Okay, so I'm going to read off a list. It's not exhaustive, but you're going to go, okay, that I, I might, maybe I've heard of a person who might have dealt with that at some point. Okay, so this is, this includes everything from sex between unmarried adults. This includes sex with high school kids, same gender sex, engaged adults who are being very practical and living together. That's that too. People who are dabbling in porn, people who are addicted to porn. People who engage in sort of fantasy in their own mind without having to actually see it in front of them. Consensual porn viewing, porn viewing with, you know, adults, married adults. Cheating on your spouse, flirting with someone who, with whom you could never have a relationship, etc., etc. It's not exhaustive. Those are all fall into the category of porneia. You guys with me? Really fun stuff. I know. You guys, are, I can tell. This is really exciting. Okay. Now, why is the first place that he goes after talking about imitating the love of Jesus and imitating and following God, why does he go to this place? Here's a couple thoughts. Maybe the society in which Paul is writing to the, the sort of this Ephesian society, this sort of greater Greek society, is a very sex-obsessed, sex-and-pleasure-focused kind of place. Maybe it's because Paul believes that sex is never just sex. That there's always something more than the physical act or the f- fantastic you know, fantasy act about what's going on in sex. Maybe there's something more that Paul realizes. Maybe there are messages of sex and sensuality everywhere these people go. Maybe Paul sees something that the Greek and Roman world doesn't want to embrace yet, that sex is really sacred. Maybe when these people, the Ephesians, go to the supermarket and next to the breath mints and the gum, there are the magazines talking about how sex and pleasure-seeking and pleasuring your other person in your life is the most important thing simply by, saturate, simply by the fact that it's always there. Sounds like a pretty faraway place. <laughs> Way different than where we live, right? But to give you a sense a little bit about the world that Paul's writing in, people belong to these groups, these sort of associations, everybody, from middle class on up. The poorest, it's not really, there's not much indication that the poorest people did this, but everybody in the society belonged to groups or associations. And when those people got together, they would hang out and they would have what's called a symposium, which sounds incredibly intelligent and sort of highbrow, doesn't it? Symposium literally means in Greek, drinking together. (laughs) So if you've ever been to a symposium, that's just the derivation of this whole, like, drinking together. Now, I want to give you a sense of how this works. This is only for men who are, uh, up to about 30 of them, only for men. And any boys and women that were there were only there for the pleasure of the men. Drinking party. 
Now, this is the way that people got together. And to not do this kind of activity, to not be engaged in the symposium, was considered weird or absurd or beyond sort of offensive, perhaps. I'm going to give you a couple symposium quotes. Here's a couple. Do you have those quotes ready to go? Okay, the dinner party, always connected with wine drinking, was the very center of social life in the Greek city. Groups that met regularly for symposia were defined by shared interests, such as particular forms of worship, professional bonds, neighborhoods, inherited descent, or political interests. Women were not normally admitted except to amuse the gathered males as singers, dancers, or sexual partners. Next quote. Jokes, gossip, and games of skill and balance enlivened the evening, as did professional musicians, dancers, and courtesans. Courtesans is really a cool word for escort, female escort. The, well, the well-conducted symposium was a center for, listen to this, a center for the transmission of traditional values. Okay, hold that for just one second. The way in which the Greek culture was going to function was out of these drinking together parties in which the women and anybody else who wasn't a grown man was the subject of the men who were there. They were there purely for the pleasing of those people. And that's the way that the traditional values of the culture were going to be transmitted as well as an event that provided liberation from everyday restraints with a carefully regulated environment. This is the culture into which Paul is writing. In fact, I have a, I have a picture of the, can I show you a picture of the symposium? Here's like from a, um, there should be a picture or two. Do you see, is it not in there? Yeah, can you show that? Oh, it's up there, sorry, it's on the preview. So here you can see a woman playing a flute, and there's some men relaxing. The guy holding up what looks like kind of like a, like a leaf, that's actually a, like a drinking vessel. And there they are, watching her do her thing, and they're sitting there kind of enjoying the sort of pleasure of the women. With me? Okay. This is the context in which Paul's writing. And so Paul makes these prohibitions in, in which he says, go back to 5, 3, and 4, in which he says this, Therefore, there should be, but among you there should be not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. When Paul's talking about this, what they would do at these things is have, basically to sum up a sort of a symposium, it would be like this. It, it, would, be, um, it would sort of be like, go there, get drunk, eat some food, meet a girl, and you know, it doesn't matter if you ever know her name, and then talk about it. That's, and so when he's writing about all these things, he's talking about this is the context here. The preferred method of social gathering in the ancient world was a symposium, and to not be a part of it was completely absurd. And Paul's saying, don't, don't live or act in the preferred method of social gathering that happens in this world. He says, imitate God, walk like Jesus in a sort of a self-sacrificing offering. The symposium was a wildly self-focused idea in which it was the center for the transmission of the cultural, culture's ideas. And its highest aim was the sexual stimulation at the expense of other people who were there. To be like God, to be like Jesus, avoid self-seeking, self-serving attitudes and behaviors might be what Paul's getting after. One guy, a guy named Demosthenes, says this. He says, we have, this is an ancient philosopher, he says, we have the courtesans for pleasure. And we have the prostitutes for the, listen to the way he says this, the daily needs of the body, prostitutes. And we have the wives for the bearing of legitimate children and for the taking care of the house. This is the culture in which people are fully, especially women and boys, are objectified. 
And Paul says, any kind of this kind of living has no place in the community of people that are gathered in the name of Jesus. Paul is saying, in a very strong way, he's saying sex has been so misplaced for these people. And he knows something that they don't know because in their mind, the best thing you could possibly do is to have the experience of full sexual pleasure all the time whenever you could get it. And he's saying there's another way to think about it. Remember, the sexuality was given to human beings before sin was even talked about. I mean, God creates man and woman and says, make more of you guys. And he makes it fun and pleasurable and good. And it's not evil. He makes it good. And this is what they do. But Paul knows something that the Greeks, the Greeks know it's good and fun. <laughs> but they don't know something else. I'm going to show you this. This is Genesis 4. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. I want you to look at this. Wait, wait, go back to the first one real quick. Adam made love to his wife Eve. Okay, look at how it reads in the King James. It actually reads in the, in the Hebrew too. Go to the next, next one. But, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Knew is the same word as made love. When, um, sort of, this is sort of an old running, like, you know, pastors need little dumb jokes. It's always like, when they say, I got to know someone, it's like, oh, in the biblical sense? <laughs> it was sort of like this. This is sort of the dumb joke we'd always say, right? You know, like, oh, you got to know in the biblical sense? Okay, this is what that comes from. Have you ever heard anybody say that? You know, did, they, did you know each other in the biblical sense? That's it. That's the hilarious pastor humor you now get. Okay. Now, when people go on dates, they start going on dates. They use the phrase, you know, hey, we're just getting to know each other. You know, of course, the pastor giggles a little bit like, yeah, sure you are. Okay. But they start to use the phrase, we're getting to know each other, which is totally appropriate. Now, the supreme act of knowing someone is the sexual union. And so there's no, this is when you're saying there are no more secrets. I have nothing else to hide. You fully know me. I want to be fully known by you and I trust you with my everything. Now listen to this. This is the beginning of Psalm 139, one of the most famous, often quoted passages in the Bible. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. The verse goes on to say, you know, the days that are before me before they happen. You know, the number of hairs on my head, etc., etc. It'd be It's just this long, like 13 or so verses of how well God knows us. And that word know is exactly the same as the word know in Genesis 4. When we talk about sexuality, we're talking about a kind of knowing that, that there is no greater form of intimacy. And Paul says to the Greek audience, and to the world in which they live. He says, don't make it cheap. Don't make it cheap. It's beautiful and sacred. And it has, it has for whatever reason, because of the fallenness of man, it needs some particular boundaries to maintain its sacredness and its beauty. And don't make it cheap. When I was a freshman in college, my, um, I had this buddy of mine who was from Hawaii, which is really cool to have a Hawaiian friend because he would always speak to me in Hawaiian pigeon and I would, I would kind of like learn it a little bit. If you, if you guys heard of Hawaiian pigeon, it sounds so cool. And, you know, I barely understood him, but I acted like I did whenever we were around other people and stuff because it just felt so awesome. Hawaiian pigeon's like, you know, like this is the only thing I remember him saying to me. He'd call me up on the phone and he'd go, hey, McGuire, you let go play racquetball or what, cuz? And all I heard was racquetball and I was like, yes, what, sure, you know, whatever. So he would say this and he'd try to get me, you know, like, hey, Jeff, you all, don't, you all pow with your homework or what? 
which means pow is like done. So I, these are the kind of things, I, and I thought, this is so awesome. Now, my buddy James, not a believer, he knew I was, and we were talking about stuff, whatever, and so he, he finds this girl in our dorm, very attractive, and she was, and so he's like, I'm going to ask her out. I'm like, way to go, dude, go for it. So he asked this girl out, and I'm, so they go on some date or whatever, and I ask him how it went, and he's like, well, um, kind of like stops a little bit. I go, what happened? He goes, well, we went out to dinner. It was great. It was really fun. And then we went back to her room. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, well, and then it got real crazy. I was like, what? He goes, well, we had sex. And I go, really? He goes, yeah. And he, he started, he, the way he talks about it, he goes, I wasn't, in, I wasn't like intending. That wasn't my intention with a first date with this person. But I wasn't going to refuse either. College guy. <laughs> and it dawned on me as he was talking about it. Because what you might predict happened is that they never went out on another date. They were cordial and polite. But they never went out anymore. There was no further steps in this relationship. And I always wondered about that scenario because it seemed as though, because this was, it seemed as though from the very beginning of that date, that was her intention as a way of saying thank you for the date. That the way she was going to express gratitude for a really nice time and dinner and all that stuff was to have sex with my friend. Which means before the date even began, she had, when she said, yes, I'll go on a date with you, she had already come to the conclusion that the way this date will end is with sex. They barely knew each other. And yet they shared the most profound experience of mutual knowledge and intimacy with each other. Paul says, don't make it cheap. And this is why he says, don't even have a hint of sexual immorality because it's never just sex. Verse 5 says this, for of this you can be sure. This is really where the hits just keep on coming. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, this is a pretty strong statement. It's really powerful. First of all, I would say this, that there's, there is, um, when Paul talks about the kingdom of God, and anytime you see the word kingdom of Christ, kingdom of God, you're talking about God's will unimpeded operating in the world, where anytime God's will is operating unimpeded. And he's saying, you don't have a share in that. And whenever we talk about it, it's talking about it in two terms. The way distant future, far, far away, when we're dead, and also the very, very present reality in the moment right now. And Paul says, you got no share in either of them. Really scary. He's saying that the desire for sort of illicit, pornea, sex fulfillment, particularly in a world in which sex is an identity maker, it has no place for the people who belong to Jesus. And what Paul's talking about, whenever you see the kingdom of God being enacted in the Bible, it's always connected with the freedom of the people for whom it's affecting. Some people don't want that freedom, but this is what it's, effect, this is what it's sort of connected to. Now, I should say this. What I thought was something that was sort of only in the high school universe back when I was a high school pastor is not really the, the case. Because what I'm going to tell you is that I thought this is what high school kids dealt with, and eventually they sort of you know, began to realize in my own life, in other people's life, the older sort of audiences I begin to deal with, this is a cycle that appears to be like the sort of cycle of freedom, and it's really the cycle of captivity that so many of us deal with when we talk about sexual sin. Here's what it looks like. See if this sounds familiar. What happens is this. You get tempted. There's an invitation. There's a thought. There's a fantasy that begins to formulate. You see someone walk by. You, um, someone, an old flame, you know, kind of gives you a what's up from, on Facebook, and you begin to sort of figure out, I wonder what would happen if I chased this road down. There's a temptation, whatever that is. 
Then secondly, what happens, the second thing is that you commit an act. You pursue the temptation down to at least a certain degree, and you go down this road, and pretty soon you've crossed the line from, that's tempting to, now I'm fully into it. And then in the third step, which is the longest step for us, is that we have this feeling of deep regret and sorrow. Oh, man, I'm really sorry I did that. I'm a, I'm a lousy person. I'm horrible. I can't believe I did this. We tear our hair out. We wear our hair shirt. We, you know, whip ourselves or whatever else that we do. And we have this belief. Somehow it, it has been given to all of us and we all experience it. That The level of regret that we feel, the level of sadness that we feel, it equals the amount of forgiveness that we'll receive. And it probably comes out of this sort of experience of how, you know, when we were kids, when you hit your little sister, and then you have to go apologize, and your mom or your dad says, say you're sorry, and you, sorry, no. What do they say next? Mean it. Like you mean it. Yeah, like you mean it's actually probably more accurate to what's actually happening. Like you mean it, because I don't really mean it. But so we have to then put on this face of, I am so sorry that I hit you, even though I really wanted to do it harder. You know, whatever it is that you're trying to say, there's this like, you know, there's this sort of, you have to mean it. And so we actually begin to translate that into our, into our sort of relationship with Jesus in which we say, if I really, really, if I feel super terrible, then it can go away. If I feel bad enough, then I can be forgiven. And what we call that is sort of self-atonement. Atonement is a word that means to cover over, that there's something wrong that's happened, so we cover it over so you can't see it. And when we begin to start living in this sort of experience of, I'm really sorry, and if I feel really, really terrible, and, you know, pull my own hair out, and, you know, where, you know, put, you know, I don't bathe for days, I don't, whatever it is that you do that make yourself feel really, really terrible, and make everybody know that you feel terrible, that's when we get, we, that's how we sort of go, well, now I'm self-atoned. I don't even need Jesus in this process. In fact, Jesus is probably so offended that I started down this road that he doesn't even want to be here, and I want to show him that I'm serious, so I self-atone by feeling really, really bad. And then, after we felt like we've suffered enough, we wait for the next temptation. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you at all. It does to me in my own life. It does to me as a pastor. It does to me when I talk to people who are like, I don't know what to do. There's more than a hint of sexual immorality in my life. What am I supposed to do? And so generally what happens is people feel really bad for a long time, then they wait for the next temptation. What I want to say is this. Maybe this is something you cannot just try really hard to get out of. Maybe you actually need Jesus and you need other people to be a part of this process. Last week, if you remember, in the passage it said, put off all falsehood. The word falsehood in Greek is the word pseudos. means all the exterior fakeness of the exterior is gone. And it's the most difficult thing for us to do as a church community, which is to say, this is the one place where everybody should be able to say, this is how I really am. And it's the one place where we're the most afraid to be that way. And Paul's saying, you're going to need other people to come around you. You're also going to need Jesus because it's not just merely simply the, we hope you get better doing this. And we're here for you. It's that you actually have to have the desires of your own heart changed. When we talk about a relationship with Jesus, it's not just like, here's Jesus, the model, follow him, which is true. But it's also that, we've, as we've talked about throughout this whole series, that Jesus occupies your own heart. It is a supernatural relationship with a supernatural God. This isn't just a new code to live by. And what we're saying is, Jesus, would you come into my own life and begin to change the desires of my own heart? One writer says about sexual desire, he says, it's not just sort of not wanting it anymore. It's not wanting to want it anymore. Hmm. That our hearts might change to no longer desire that sort of former life. And I would say this, the degree to which that former life, the one that Paul's talking about, this other life, 
the degree to which that life became your identity, the, that's the degree to which it will sort of take time and effort, energy, you know, to get out of that life. If it was a habit, it's one thing. If it became your identity, I'm this person who's wrapped up in this kind of sexual identity, whatever that might be, then that will take that much longer to sort of be, to change it. And you will probably be more resistant to it as well. Now remember, Paul says be imitators as loved, dearly loved children. Walk like Jesus, who offered himself as a, as a fragrant offering and as a sacrifice, which meant he, built, he bore the weight willingly and the pain of other people onto himself. And it's super important that you hear that before we go into this next couple of verses, which says this, 8 through 12. For you were once darkness. Now, stop right there. Not you were once in the dark. You were once darkness. That's an identity statement, too. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Oh, live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists, of, consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Then next, next verse says this. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Stop right there. Okay. Paul says, he says, there is this sort of, there is this life to which you belong in which you were dark. And now it's been exposed. And he says, um, go back to the last verse real quick. Put it on the screen, the last screen. But now live as the light, you children of the light. And he says, there was this light in which you live, but now live as children of the light. Go to, um, go, to verse, go to verse 13 too. Let's see that one real quick. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that, that is illuminated becomes a light. Okay, can we clear the screen real quick? So um, my, my kids and I play a game in our house and they love it. And you're going to think, you love it? You have an abusive relationship with your children. I know, they love it. It's really crazy. What they do, we do this thing where we just, I don't, we don't have a good name for it. It's just called scare. And what we do is I'll hide and they'll not know that I'm behind the door, which is where I always hide. And I jump out and scare, or whatever, right? And they, they get scared. And then inevitably what happens after the scare is hug and tickle. That's, all, that's the way it goes. That's the way that our game goes every time. I have three kids. My oldest is seven. And he's starting to be able to scare me too, which is just a little shot to my ego. Um, but my youngest, I mean, I, you know, you can, you can scare him four times in a row pretty much. But the other ones... What they'll do is this. So I'll be, you know, you know, behind the bed or in the closet, whatever it is. And they'll run in the room. I hear the little footsteps. Daddy. Rawr, rawr, and I jump out. Ah, and I hug, tickle. Ha, ha, ha. That's awesome. Now, what my kids will say is this. They'll say, more, Daddy. Do it again. And they'll just look at me and wait for me to scare them. <laughs> they're like looking at me like, go ahead, scare Daddy. And I'm like, you guys, it doesn't, it doesn't really, I'm trying to explain to, you know, a two-and-a-half-year-old. It doesn't, I can't, you know, it's the scaring mechanism. I don't know how the brain works, but if you see it coming, it's not scary. Like I was trying to, you know, you know how do you explain it to them? Once, I, once I'm exposed for being in the dark, it's no longer dangerous. It's not scary. It, cannot, it can no longer do that. It no longer has the same effect. Paul is saying the same thing here. Don't just live in the dark. You're exposed. It's for real now. Everybody knows it. Let's just come clean. There it is. But he says something else, too. Well, let me do it this way, first of all. Paul talks about exposing these things. Two responses to exposing. Both, neither of them are helpful. Here's the first one. There are some people who are in the church, the glorious body of loving, forgiving, truth-telling, grace-filled people, who love, love exposing other people's sin. They love it. It is like, thank God I get to talk about someone else's garbage. And they're so excited for people to be able to point that stuff out that they'll either change the way that they live or they'll leave. Either way, they're fine with that. But in that, there's no self-sacrificing, no walking like Jesus, no offering, no bearing the weight, no self none of that stuff. It's just sort of the experience of moral superiority. 
And there's no part in restoration in that kind of attitude. Typically, these are people who, um, who have their own sort of hidden secretness that's actually kind of damaging that they sort of project on other people. That's just my experience. That's one, sort of a person who is overly happy to expose someone else's sin. Number two, the other kind of person is this. The interpretation of loving sacrificially that Jesus models is that whatever is basically whatever works for you. That tends to be a lot of the way a lot of us operate, right? Like, in other words, we'd rather be liked above all else things. Paul says about... Um, Paul says about sort of life and behavior, he says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. One of his other letters, a couple of his other letters actually says this. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And a person who belongs to this second sort of category thinks that everything must be beneficial, and to say otherwise is to not be a loving person. That's just not true. Because love is about truth. It's about the intent to restore. And if everything is beneficial, then there can be no restoration from things that are not beneficial. Let me put on um, verse 13 again. It says this. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And the second part, look at this. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. When I was in college, I took a class. I was a history major, but I took, um, you have to take you know, all your G's and stuff. And one of them was this sort of science class. Atmospheric science is 1B. I know you guys have heard of it. It's kind of a big deal. Um, but they said this. <laughs> it's not really. Um, some of you are like, wow, he really thinks he's smart. No, it's an introductory science class that all the athletes took. Not that I was one of those athletes either. <laughs> but they, they, about the third week of the class, they start talking about this thing that made us all giggle. And it's the word albedo, which we were all like, did he just say libido in class? Is that what we're talking about here? Albedo. Okay, now here's what that is. Now, albedo is a sort of, it's, a, it's usually measured in a percentage of light reflectivity. So when they talk about the sun reflecting its light radiation back, you know, it talks about different sort of things have different, have different albedo. So like dirt is like pretty low. Water is like a 20% albedo. Snow is in like, the, like fresh snow is like 90% albedo rate. That's, that's how much light is reflected off of the sun back. That's why it looks so stark white. Now, so zero, a zero is a dark and 100% is a fully reflective like mirror, okay? Now, the moon is considered a dark object with a less than 1% albedo. Now, my buddy runs a, um, a like paddleboarding, the stand-up paddleboarding business. Just a couple days ago, they did their moonlight paddle. A dark object reflecting enough light that these people could take a night paddle on the ocean. A dark object becoming light. The moon reflects so much light that at some point during full moons, astronomers can't get clear views of the stars because there's so much light that comes off of the moon. It's reflected light. What was once darkness is exposed, becomes visible, and it becomes a light. Paul says that the ultimate good isn't just that the things are exposed, it's that the things begin to be transformed from darkness into light. Become, not, not just merely become what light will expose, but become a light itself. This is the Paul's dream, journey, prayer, hope for the Ephesians who are caught up in a life which is so sex obsessed and so cheapened it. And he says, don't, let's not live, let's become a light. Let me give you some ways to think about this. I'm going to assume, and this is across the board at all of our campuses, really, at, at Mariner's. That every single person in here has some kind of sexual hang-up, some issue, some 
hint of sexual immorality. If that's not you, if you're like, that's not me, I, I know it's not me, we have, um, we're going to talk about lying in a couple weeks, and I just want to invite you to <laughs> make sure you're there for that. Um, love to have you for that. But I'm going to assume everybody in here has some kind of sexual something in their own life. And, and what I'm going to assume is that this, you know, you're presently involved in any kind of sex, real or fantasy or whatever, with someone that isn't your own spouse. And when this isn't about singling out certain sort of sexual things over others, like, oh, that one's really bad, and this is more offensive than the other, or whatever, they're all, they're all in the same category. If they're a hint, they're in the same category. Everybody understand? Okay, we're not, like, trying to find out which is more or worse or whatever. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you some space. This is you and God. This is you beginning to take, to really, maybe this is a first step to beginning to take seriously what's in your life. Okay, so what I want you to do is close your eyes. I'm going to walk you through a little bit of a prayer. If you're not sure about who Jesus is, then I would just say maybe you ask him to reveal, you, reveal himself to you in this time in some capacity. But let's, let me just walk you through this. Would you pray this in your own quietness of your own heart? Would you pray this? God, would you reveal to me what is in my own heart? Would you expose it for what it is? Jesus, I'm ready to embrace the truth, the reality of what you are already aware of in my own life. As you sit with your eyes closed, as you're thinking about it, as you're wondering how serious it is and what you should do, would you at first just admit that it's present? And invite Jesus to be a part of the restoration of forming something that's in darkness into light. We're going to sing together. Keep your eyes closed for a second. We're going to sing together in a moment. And with those words that we say be the collective prayer in unison of this group, responding to God's great love, that we might be transformed from things that have some darkness still in them into things of great light. And when we talk about each other, would this be our prayer that we would support and bear one another? We would not lord over any kind of moral superiority over anybody else in this room because it's not the desire or the intent. God, would you hear us? Would you hear our prayer as a group of people, not just individuals who say, we want to be transformed to light. So hear our prayer in song, Jesus.